I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. It's good to have you listening. If you miss part of the conversation, you can always catch it, the whole interview, on my podcast. When Alice Young arrives in the all-black community of New Jessup, Alabama, she possesses a couple of dresses, dusty shoes, and a dime given to her by a kind stranger. But what she finds in New Jessup is a new love, a close family, and a town committed to the idea of separation and fearful of calls for equality through integration. Today, a conversation about the history of all black communities in America and the glimpse that Jamila Minix gives us into those lives through her fictional characters. Jamila Minix's debut novel is titled Moonrise Over New Jessup, and she joins us today from Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I've read about the all black community of Eatonville, Florida, that I think acclaimed writer Zora Neale, Neale Hurston grew up in. I didn't realize there were all black towns in many states, including Alabama. So I thought we could begin to talk a little bit about the history of these places. What did you learn about them? What did you know about them as you conceived of the novel? You know, it comes from two different sort of places. You know, my people are Alabama for four generations. So I grew up hearing a very full picture of what it meant to be black in Alabama, to live in a community that was all black, where everywhere you looked, you could see a teacher and be a teacher, see a doctor, be a doctor. So even coming up, I knew that we lived in community and loving community with one another, which was really sort of the impetus of the book. But mm -hmm. then in learning more about, you know, what these communities meant nationwide, um, I learned that there were more than 1,200 black towns, settlements, quarters, bottoms, neighborhoods, enclaves, whatever you want to call them, that were founded in this country between the late 18th in early 20th centuries, and even in the last couple of years, um, we have Freedom Georgia that was mm -hmm. founded right. as, a, as a place to be a black enclave where we can be in community with one another. Historically, the communities were often on land that white people didn't want. I, I know right. that's blunt, but isn't that basically true? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, at Emancipation... A lot of, particularly in the South, the um, farmland, it was farmland that had been farmed out, used up because of cotton. It could be, as in New Jessup, just worthless swamp land. If we get out to Oklahoma and Texas, I mean, that was really sort of like flatland, dead land that, um, you know, people went, like when we talk about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the people who went out there and founded Greenwood, Greenwood, like many of these communities, was built by the hands of my ancestors from nothing. So, yeah, I mean, that they were, it was a lot of times land that just people didn't, white people didn't want. Uh, I lived and worked in Tulsa, Oklahoma for a while, and as you say, Many of us who have lived in that region are familiar with Greenwood, and then there was this terrific 
uh, documentary um, earlier, late last year about it. I think your novel is also exploring the anger and the retribution that white residents would unleash when they would perceive that black communities were doing well. Um, and, and that is important in the founding of the community that you've created in your novel. Talk a little bit about the history of that retribution, and then I want to talk specifically about Jessup and New Jessup in the book. Well, one thing I want for people to sort of understand about my book is that it centers blackness. And I think it's important when we talk about Neatonville and Greenwood and the black towns and settlements. My goal in writing this book is to write something that honors that my ancestors and elders built these communities. So I always approach it from that. So yes, while white retribution and hate and anti-blackness was the reason that New Jessup rose from the swamp, this book is an exploration of what it looked like when we built from the Mm -hmm. swamp. And so I just, you know, I always approach it Um, Talking about the work, I certainly approached every craft decision with that in mind, that this is supposed to do honor to how my ancestors and elders built and lived, because I don't think that unless we understand how they lived, that we can really truly understand what was lost and how they died. It, It is right to say, though, that in the living the building and the living in these communities, they had reason to fear that white communities having, again, given them cast off land, were now looking at these, the prosperity, right? The potential of these communities. I mean, this happened in Greenwood, right? When a mob, when a white mob came in and burned down uh, Greenwood in 1921. That That is also an element of these towns that you've created in, in your book, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is, you know, when I say the focus is my ancestors and elders and what they built, it certainly is an acknowledgement to say that anti-blackness and white supremacy were a part of the lived experience every day. I'm mean, sure they said in the book that, you know, Negro Jessup, which was New Jessup's predecessor, was built up so much that at a certain point, the white folks started wondering who was living on the other side of the tracks from whom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's obviously a part of the lived experience. I think with me talking about the work, you know, my mama used to say, you know, a half truth is still a whole lie. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, part of the lived experience is anti-blackness and this idea of trying to find freedom from anti-blackness and white supremacy. But when you talk to people in these towns, even today, the language around that theme is not of fear, but it's about of self-empowerment. How can Mm -hmm. we explore ideas of freedom without being in this perpetual state of fear. And so mm-hmm. I, I sort of see those, I see how they're corollaries, but I also see a distinction in the language that of the founders and 
of my elders and ancestors and how they sort of approached building these spaces. Is it right to say that in many of these communities, including in the fictional community that you've created in the novel, this idea of separate but equal seems like a workable solution, I guess, a workable way to to live? You know, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, I go into this work and I think I come out of it saying there are no great solutions. You know, you know, considering what my ancestors and elders had to work with, you know, we say we make a way out of no way. Now, whether mm-hmm. that way is right, wrong, middling, it just, it is what it is because they built so that my granddaddy could be here, so my mama could be here, so I could be here. So whether it's perfect or a solution, they were making do with what they had. That's not to say, though, that, you know, when we talk about resources, which is a a whole other conversation Mm -hmm. I'd love Mm -hmm. to have, but, you know, this is about folks making a way out of no way. Now, let's talk about resources, though, Mm -hmm. what that means. Um, You know, in the novel, the New Jessup, the black community, is still aware that the schools and the government institutions are getting the kinds of support, right, and funding that they're not getting. They're kind of left on their own. You wanted to be separate be separate over there, but there is going to be no equality of, of resources. Tell me, tell me about how you thought through that, through the novel and the research. Well, I mean, those are stories that I came up hearing. Those are stories that the elders and ancestors, or the elders, still tell about the school mm-hmm. books in particular, things of that nature, um, the materials for the schools, all coming secondhand. The diversion of tax money. I mean, these were thriving communities that absolutely paid into the tax base that didn't see, like Raymond said, we pay a dollar, we're owed a dollar, we get a dime. Mm -hmm. And Jessup is owed a dollar and they get two. So there is an understanding of how the money works, where the money's supposed to go, and where the money's not going. Absolutely. Isn't that still the case today? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, we see that when we talk about, I think we're having this conversation in the space of gentrification, certainly, when neighborhoods that have been been habitually underserved, all of a sudden we find resources to put into the schools, to fix the roads, to make sure that the neighborhoods have all sorts of resources that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. But I also want to give credit to the people who maintain these neighborhoods when they were all black, underserved neighborhoods. Um, people were still holding it down. And now they're being pushed out because there is an influx of resources that they've been fighting for for decades. I think that was also the motivation behind redlining, right? 
where families of color would be steered away from neighborhoods. I mean, at the heart of that, isn't it that we don't want others sharing in the kind of prosperity we know that's going to be invested in this community, A, and B, we don't want to live next door to those others. Is that right? I mean, I think redlining was one vehicle for that. Certainly, um, we talk about the black GIs coming back from World War II who didn't have equal access to the GI Bill. Um, there are a lot of different um, structures that have been deprived to of, uh, to us that have ultimately ended up with us not being able to own homes. And you see how generationally that wealth has then continually deprived of the community because home ownership, home ownership, excuse me, is wealth. Mm -hmm. You're a lawyer, aren't you, in your other uh, life? I'm a recovering lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Do laws, I know laws are important. Do laws... They don't really change people's hearts. No. Dr. King said that. Dr. King said that the law can't change hearts, but it can certainly change actions. And I, <laughs> I paraphrased that, and I paraphrased it terribly, so my apologies mm -hmm. to Dr. King. But we certainly need guardrails because, I, I mean, while I am a recovering lawyer, I have seen how statutes and regulations are drafted. I've seen how the sausage is made. I've seen how communities are excluded, how certain communities are included to their enrichment. Um, so I think it's, it's all very cyclical, right? It's like we need people making laws that are going to benefit the community. We need laws that will benefit the community. We need a judiciary that's going to help us to enforce those laws. So, but, you know, I think it is absolutely a vehicle for change, but it's the whole system that certainly needs, needs a little bit of reworking, I'll say. Mm. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show. I'm in conversation with Jamila Minix. Her debut novel is titled Moonrise Over New Jessup. And you hear our discussion developing about what it meant over history in the years after Reconstruction failed and up to today, what it meant to live in all black communities, um, the different the different ideas of the people in that community about what it meant to be in that community. Mm -hmm. This, we're talking about the approach of an idea of separate but equal, and uh, and it's a wide-ranging conversation. I'm glad you're listening. And if you miss part of it, you can always find the rest of it on my podcast. Uh, I want to talk a little bit for for our listeners who I anticipate will read the novel after they hear our conversation. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the geography. Uh, and the people that make up New Jessup. And then we'll talk about how Alice Young arrives. How would you describe this town? It's an all-black settlement. So it's not a municipality. We talked a little about Eatonville. Zora Neale Hurston mm -hmm. very famously described Eatonville as the first 
black municipality in the United States. There is some debate about that, but you know, we won't we won't get into that today. Um, but it was founded in 1903 by men and women who had been sent into the swamp by anti-black violence. And over the course between 1903 and 1957, when Alice Young arrives, it's built into a town of approximately 10,000 people. It's got a hotel, schools, churches, a couple of business districts. It's a, it's a thriving black community, and it's in New Jessup, Alabama. She's escaping from Jim Crow, Alabama, and she and Alice thinks that she's going to head north to join her sister in Chicago, where she's she believes she's not going to have to deal with what she's experienced in uh, in Alabama. But she gets off the train in New Jessup, and what does she encounter? So she takes the bus. So there's no bus. Oh, the bus. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Uh, So she gets off the bus and she says, I had never intended to leave Alabama. Um, But when she gets there, she's leaving and she's in this state when she leaves Rensselaer where her daddy has just died. Her sister has gone to Chicago and she hasn't heard from her in a few months. She's... um, very stressed about an encounter with her landlord. And she really doesn't want to go to Chicago. She never did want to go to Chicago. So she's in this sort of liminal space. When she pulls up, the bus pulls up, she's not going to get off. She doesn't know if she's traveled 100 country miles or 10, doesn't know how many times the bus has stopped. But what catches her eye is a pair of red pumps walking by and this woman with bronze legs which catches her eye immediately and she sort of looks around like where am I and so the man seated next to her who's been sort of chatting her up during the ride offers her a dime and sort of hints this is a good place to get off and stretch your legs and she gets off and she encounters this shoeshine man and she says, I'm looking for the colored entrance. She stops at the front door because she just she doesn't believe that she can walk through this front door. And so he says, you know, if you're looking for white folks, you kind of have to look all the way on the other side of the woods to find a single one. <laughs> and when she looks around and she sees the man behind the bus station counter and the family by the Coca-Cola machine and the men across the street in bib overalls and two army soldiers and all these different people and everybody's black and people seem to be so thriving and self-assured. I think it just, she realizes where she's come from, a place where she's sort of fleeing and saying, I'm free from segregation and Jim Crow to a place where she experiences something where a place where she's free to be for the first time in her life. And I think that's really a powerful moment for her. I think she falls in love with the town, doesn't she? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
along with one of the <laughs> its favorite sons. Mm-hmm. But she just loves, and I love your descriptions of this, she loves not just what it stands for, but she kind of loves the geography of it, you know, the, the dusty districts and some of the beautiful outlying, mm-hmm. the pine forests of it. I mean, she has that, I think you bring us into that idea of there's a familiarity for her about this place that she's never been. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense, yes. And, you know, that comes from my mama, my family. My family is four generations Alabama. And Mm. so coming up, you know, I grew up outside Chicago, but my mama was, she reminds me, and she is the epitome to me of what Alabama women are. They're smart, they're resilient, they're creative, and they know their own mind. And so when Alice gets to New Jessup, she sees a place where she can be all of these things and people will support her and she can rise and shine when she's surrounded by blackness. So it's really a place for her to be able to be vulnerable. And what do we do when we're in our most vulnerable spaces? We can really grow. I'm curious about your upbringing outside of Chicago, but your obvious close ties Mm -hmm. to the family Mm -hmm. that remained in Alabama. So what what would happen? You'd spend summers with, what, grandparents and family members in Alabama? How did you come to know it? No. So my grandparents had both passed on before I came around. So Mm -hmm. I think as what happens with a lot of people, the home house is the central house. So my cousins, my older cousins all had the experience of being around my grandparents And my mama was very much the bridge to the history of our family that you don't see in the textbooks and the history books. Mm -hmm. So being here now, being here whenever, you know, I I travel here quite often now. um, And I see my family and I spend time with my family, but my family is close. And so no matter where we've been geographically, Alabama has been that anchor for us. Do you, but you live outside of D.C. still? I live in D.C. now. Do you, it, I can hear the warmth mm-hmm. in your voice about um, being back in Alabama. I mean, mm-hmm. what, do you aspire to move back there or what? I guess what place does Alabama hold in your future, do you think? Alabama is my ancestral soil. Um, mm. My, It's just where I'm the most at home. I do hope, and this is sort of my my sales pitch for other black writers, I think when we have been separated by the Great Migration, so many of us, have family and land still back south of the Mason-Dixon. And so one of my goals is to start a Black Writers Residency um, in Alabama, because that's where my people are, in hopes of encouraging Black writers to experience the soil for themselves, to come home. You know, Charles Blow talks about 
mm-hmm. of this sort of feeling in um, the devil you know. And I think there's really something to that, that there's, and I know that my writing absolutely got better and much richer just being here. So, I mean, I aspire to open that residency sooner rather than later. That sounds exciting. Charles mm-hmm. Blow is a columnist for the New York Times who ended up moving to Georgia, mm-hmm. right? Leaving the Northeast and moving mm-hmm. back to Georgia. Um, one of the conflicts that in the community that Alice Young starts to understand that the longer she lives there are the differences of opinion about this separateness mm-hmm. and this supposed equality and the future of New Jessup and how they're going to manage that. Maybe you would describe how she start, how it starts to dawn on her that there are people with very different concepts of what the future is for the, for the town she loves. Well, she first discovers the spectrum of it at all. Um, the night of the juke, <laughs> mm-hmm. when um, Raymond decides to surprise her, <laughs> and it sort of goes awry. <laughs> um, and I won't. I'm going to try to keep this, I guess, as spoiler free as possible. Yeah, that's cool. Of course. But you know, she really learns that there's a spectrum, right? Because she's coming to the town. She's encountered so far the Browns, the pastor and his wife. Um, she's encountered Miss Vivian. She's encountered Pop and Miss Catherine before she passes. And she's encountered Miss, Mr. Marvin. So this is the generation of head of her, the generation of stewardship for New Jessup that is really focused on maintaining this sort of, I think somebody, I like they described it, this sort of unstable detente with mm-hmm. Jessup. Right. And so then she's, you know, hanging out with Raymond Campbell. He seems like a pretty nice guy. <laughs> and, but, you know, he's got secrets. You know, Pop said, my, you, go, you aren't going to catch my son out here on Pinckney Ave. <laughs> and then, of course, <laughs> he takes her right over to Pinckney Ave. <laughs> so Raymond is a man of mystery. You know, he's got some secrets, but she's, she's down for that. Um, but that's the night when she really starts to learn about the spectrum of beliefs as it pertains to the future of New Jessup. And even Raymond, between Raymond and the fellas and patients, there's there's a disparity. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Some of this is generational. Some mm-hmm. of this, um, as you say, this spectrum is, I, I guess, the imagination, right, of what it what it will mean to bring this community into whatever contemporary politics, racial Mm -hmm. situation that will exist, and and whether New Jessup can thrive with all of the, I think, kind of frightening crosswinds that that these young leaders see ahead of them. They Mm -hmm. see the changes happening, right? They know there's going to be change coming to New Jessup, and they're trying to figure it out. I think that's right. You know, like Raymond says at one point, if we don't get in the driver's seat, we're going to get run over. We need to make our interests known. You know, they say closed mouths don't get fed. So Raymond is saying we need to stand up. This is our home. And 
he's trying to come up with this sort of hybrid approach, which is what he believes is going to help New Jessup get what it needs resource-wise and see its way into the future while maintaining this sort of safety and freedom that he grew up in and that allowed him to grow up to be the man that he became. I I think it's something that everyone who confronts a big change that's coming, I mean, we're in the midst of this right now in in a collective sense in America. But even if you live in a smaller community and you see change happening, there's that, I guess there's that instinct to just try to have it both ways. We don't have to turn it all over. We can have what's good about this, but we can also try to accept change. So often, that's almost impossible, isn't it? You know, it's hard to say because I obviously I can't speak for every community in the world. I think some people do it with varying degrees of success. Um, But I think there's a flexibility when we talk about what the future looks like. I mean, this, my book is about what black social advancement looks like. Mm -hmm. And I just did a, an interview with Maurice Carlos Ruffin. And I said, you know, I think at the heart of it, no matter where we fall on this spectrum, we know in 1957, 1961, at the end of the book, if we know in 2023 that black people deserve better. So I think that when we approach certain problems, like the problems that we have in these communities, whether we're talking about schools or gentrification or busing or, you know, food deserts or whatever, um, like environmental racism, policing, what the problems that plague these communities, I think when we start from a place of black people deserve better, it brings us to the table in ways that can assist us do what Raymond and the fellas and Alice are absolutely trying to do. Mm -hmm. They don't want to get run over. They want to make sure that they're driving themselves. They convince the NNAS to come in and give them a shot to do just that. So I think that there's, there's a conversation to be had when we know where we're, we have a common goal. I'm going to come back to the NNAS uh, in a <laughs> oh, minute. Oh, I'm sorry. But, I didn't mean to foreshadow. No, that's, that's good. <laughs> um, but I don't want to miss talking about the discussion that goes on in the novel about Booker T. Washington, because mm-hmm. this was a whole part of, well, clearly I learned nothing about Booker T. Washington in mm-hmm. school, because I knew nothing about some of these speeches that he gave and how controversial some of his views were. Mm-hmm. Um A a bit of background here. Uh, Booker T. Washington has given a speech in 1895 to the Atlanta Cotton States Mm -hmm. and International Exposition. It's to an all-white audience. Eleven years later, he goes into a recording studio to re-record the speech, and about three minutes of it survives. We're going to listen to a bit of those three minutes in a moment. But But will you explain how his views are animating the discussion that's going on in New Jessup and probably a lot of these all-black communities? What does he mean to that conversation? You know, Booker T. Washington, 
some of these towns colloquially call themselves Booker T. Towns. He was a man that was born enslaved and sort of had this very unique perspective of how to operate amongst whiteness and around whiteness. And so he, in the Atlanta Exposition speech, sort of makes these comments, well, makes these comments about how we need to, as black people, need to, like, stay close enough to white people to help them and make sure that they have what they need, but also that we should live socially separate. And a lot of people really criticized him for saying that because, you know, he also advocated for us to work the land, to find trades. Um, so he didn't necessarily advocate for higher education. He wanted us to be financially stable. So a lot of these towns, when you're building from nothing, these are men and women who got to work and really adopted that philosophy that we need to get to work, we need to build our communities, and we need to make build businesses for ourselves and make sure that we are finding socioeconomic success and social separation, which is where we're in community with one another. Okay, so this is an excerpt from the Library of Congress audio of the speech. Again, ju just for clarity's sake here, it's a speech that Mr. Washington gave in 1895 to an all-white audience, but then he went in and re -rec or, or recorded the speech into a recording studio. So let's listen. Ignorant and inexperienced, it is not strange that in the first years of our new life, we began at the top instead of the bottom. That a seat in Congress or the state legislature was more sought than real estate or industrial skill. That the political convention or stump speaking had more attraction than starting a dairy farm or a truck garden. A ship lost at sea for many days suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal. Water, water, we die of thirst. The answer from the friendly vessel at once came back. Cast down your bucket where you are. A second time, the signal, water, send us water, ran up from the distressed vessel and was answered, cast down your bucket where you are. A third and fourth signal for water was answered, cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the distressed vessel at last, eating the injunction, cast down his bucket and it came up full of fresh, sparkling water from the mouth of the Amazon River. To those of my race who depend on bettering their condition in a foreign land, or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friend relations with the southern white man, who is their next-door neighbor, I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down in making friends in every manly way of the people of all races, by whom you are surrounded. That's Booker T. Washington uh, from the text of a speech that he gave in 1895. Jamil, mm -hmm. I just want to ask what you hear when you listen to his voice, having obviously um, known a lot about him and written him into the novel. What do you hear in the speech? 
You know, I hear a man who was formerly enslaved. I hear a man who understands that in order for him to advocate social advancement and social progress for black people, that he has to give all of these platitudes to (laughs) this convention that is pretty dedicated to the degradation of black people. He's navigating two sides of events. And he's been widely criticized as being, you know, a sort of a, a race traitor and all these things. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a much more nuanced and there's a much more nuanced conversation that deserves to be had because we're today having conversations in 2023 about black safe spaces. We're today having conversations about gentrification and black neighborhoods and the destruction of the places where we live, right? And so I think there is value absolutely to the things that he was saying. I think it's wrong to discount our leaders and people who really put themselves out there because they cared to to see us succeed. You know, I obviously don't agree that we didn't need to be in state legislatures. I mean, we absolutely need to be in elected office and to go and get higher education if that's where our gifts and talents send us. I don't think that we should limit ourselves. But I think that the conversation around Booker T., deserves a more nuanced look. Mm -hmm. He adds in this speech that this part that we didn't hear, in all things that are purely social, Mm -hmm. we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand Mm -hmm. in all things essential to mutual progress. I mean, that's exactly what the white audience wants to hear. That's exactly right. And the black audience of the day? You know, I think... People heard him when he said that, heard him saying, you are entitled to enjoy your safe spaces and your freedoms as well. You know, I I always have this conversation with people. I sometimes think that when black and white people are in conversation with one another, we don't hear each, we don't hear the same conversation. So when he's saying we can be as separate as the fingers, but come together as the fists and all things for social advancement, when white people hear, yes, stay over there and stay to your land, I think black people here, or, you know, I could say some black people here, yes, this also means that this is our space mm-hmm. to be free. So... It does beg the question, you know, is he sort of, is this sort of talking, not talking out of both sides of his mouth, but it certainly, is he, does he have a certain message for black people and a certain message for white people? I don't know, you know, much more um, esteemed historians than I have grappled with that. Uh, In the novel, as you've mentioned, the sons of some of New Jessup's founders have created this organization called the NNAS, but they have to keep it a secret from their 
parents and from many of the townspeople. Will you explain why? Why it is such high stakes that many people that live in New Jessup not know what they're doing? So the NNAS is a, a national organization. So they've been doing this work throughout the country to promote integration, which the founding fathers, some of whom are, would stay very much still be alive, the town stewards, which would be the Pop and the Mr. Marvin and Miss Vivian generation, who would have definitely remembered being part of Negro Jessup, being part of the swamp and building up, they're not going to want to bring a nationally recognized integration um, organization or an organization that fights for integration into New Jessup because of this sort of detente that they have with Jessup. That's why, you know, Pop and Mr. Marvin and Cap attend those meetings. And, you know, they they would really want to make sure that anybody who is involved in any sort of agitating, as they would have called it, um, was dealt with within the community, which, you know, looks any number of ways. You, you described the differences of opinion uh, earlier as a, as a spectrum. And there's a young journalist and activist named mm-hmm. Patience. She's mm-hmm. dating, one again, one of the sons of uh, one of the community leaders. And I, is it right to say that Patience who is impatient (laughs) for change (laughs) and Alice, I guess kind of represent uh, pretty different places on this spectrum of opinion about separation and equality. Is that right? I think their relationship is so complicated. Mm. Um, They on the spectrum, they are dug in and they are pretty Mm. opposite. They also, you know, and we're talking about the civil rights movement, but there there are also issues that Patience is having with the fellows and being a part of the NNAS that I think she would love to have Alice as an ally, mm-hmm. right? And so, and I think Alice was looking for a friend, right? I think she's looking for somebody who she can, she can talk to who's her age and their relationship was just so remarkably complicated. Yeah, I mean, part of part of what Alice hopes is that with Patience's um, contacts up north, mm-hmm. that she can figure out or give her some information about what has happened to her sister. That's right. Uh, as you note, Patience is hoping that she can draw Alice in to... Um, to this, to the NNAS, and that she'll be influential with Raymond. Is there anything, I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt, because I (laughs) thought their relationship was among the most interesting in the novel. Um, (laughs) What else would you add before we hear that? um, About Patience and Alice? Yeah, about this this scene between them, where they're talking about what what the North means and all of that. So I think that they're, you know, I am pretty protective of Alabama. And, you know, I came up, my people hunted and grew food on this land and had built businesses. 
We fished in the Tom Bigbee and where my mom was baptized. So when I hear people call Alabama and they say, you know, Alabama is just a terrible place, like all of America's ills exist south of the Mason-Dixon, east of the Mississippi. I wanted to sort of explore that and challenge people that we should know and recognize that anti-blackness exists everywhere on American soil. It just, you know, it's just a horse of another feather. Okay. Um, so if you'll read a scene where I think they're in conversation and their differences are, are showing. <laughs> sure. All right. So it starts with patience. North isn't so different, you know, about segregation. Here is the law. There, they just draw these sneaky red lines on maps. Banks use the maps to issue loans that prey on folks, and city services are a joke if they exist at all. The result is segregation, no matter how you slice it. Quickening my pace, I wanted to get as far away from patience in these words as possible. Like my sister, she kept stride easily with longer legs. But unlike my sister, she was hinting that Rosie was unsafe up north and calling the whole world's attention to herself as a woman named Johanna Riley. I ain't come here to talk to you about red lines. We were supposed to meet and look through cakes and maybe if you had news about Rosie. I haven't heard word yet. That'll take a while, like I told you. You'll be the first to know when I know anything. But this is about people like your sister who've been going north forever for opportunity, only to be excluded from good houses, schools, everything, because of some red lines on a map. But that ain't Rosie. My sister lives with a nice family and does hair. Okay. But other folks live in rat-infested fire traps with filthy drinking water and no heat in the wintertime. People freeze to death that get so cold. She wasn't hearing me, understanding me. I ain't interested in lecture patience. My sister wouldn't live like that is what I'm telling you, I said, as we reached the tailor-made doorway. I opened the cake book, and we both bowed heads over it, pointing, whispering, nothing sweet until the end. I'm sure she lives with nice people, she said. It's just, Raymond, Matthew, or any of the others know about this? I asked. Her neck stiffened and her face tightened. Pausing to answer, she turned one page, then another, and pointed at a cake. Her voice deepened and cooled. Why would that matter? This is under my pen name, not on behalf of the NNAS, and being published all the way in Chicago, so there's no reason for them to know. You know people around here listen, talk, you think about what drawing attention to yourself really means if folks read these articles and find out you're Johanna Riley? How would something like that happen? I don't know, but what if it did? Y'all are quiet here, working underground. I can tell you're upset about your sister. Stop putting this on Rosie. My sister lives with a nice family and does hair, I know. Don't live inside no red lines. Stop talking about her like that. I thought I had finally understood patience, both of us longing for long-gone family. 
but this article made her loneliness seem more deliberate and intentional choice, like sometimes she wanted an ocean between her and herself, herself and others, and sometimes she meant to drown the very people she presumed to love or work with. This ain't about Rosie. This is about you drawing attention to yourself and everybody around you. Why? Jamila Minnick's reading from her debut novel, Moonrise Over New Jessup. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, your dialogue sounds so natural in your voice, <laughs> and I know this is your debut novel. Did you read a lot of it aloud to yourself oh, as absolutely. you were writing it? <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> you did? <laughs> and and uh, to get the rhythm of the dialogue, the sound of the words together, why? Because it was important to me to get it right. In literature, if I dare open my mouth to talk about Alabama, a place that I love and a place that my people have been for four generations, what a slap in the face I would have been to just write caricatures of Alabama on the page. I, I read an essay that you wrote for Catapult Magazine <laughs> in which you wrote about capturing the power of oral st- mm-hmm. storytelling in the in the parlance, I guess, of Alice's language. And you said, rendering oral storytelling to the page requires a careful and honest pen, mm-hmm. one with the goal of doing harm, neither to the words nor the experience. Mm-hmm. Careful and honest pen. What, what does that mean? It means writing what I hear, what I've heard. You know, I think that sometimes we get into this place where we want to write and we think about who the audience is. And we think about, we conflate that with publishing success. Mm -hmm. And so we sit down and we say, I want this to cast a wide net. I want this to appeal to as many people as possible. And what that does is dilute the voice. So when I read books and I would see books about people in Alabama, particularly black people in Alabama, I was like, I mean, it doesn't sound like my people. (laughs) So I wanted to render us for true on the page. And I always said, if I couldn't do that, I would never have published this book because my people deserve better. Is there a novel that you think about Alabama that really does render render it true, as you put it? I think the greater like liter- black literary canon, there are people who just render our dialogue really well. Um mm-hmm. Not particularly about Alabama, but I think of Toni Morrison. I know everybody goes to her first, but Alice Walker, Gail Jones, you know, I think about Robert Jones Jr. in The Prophets, Mm -hmm. you know, and some sort of more contemporary literature like um, Disha Filia's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. It's really about writing what we hear and experience. So even if it's not in Alabama, per se, there's an encouragement really to write who we know. So that's what I did. I, I wanted to close with a song that um, that takes Alice back to her childhood in the oh, novel. Okay. And it's Motherless Child. Yes. 
Is this a meaningful song for you? Yes, um, because my mama, who was so instrumental to making me the woman I became, passed away several years ago. So when I was writing that particular portion, I think part of it was I was just missing her a lot. And, um, but this song, it's a, it's one of our old work songs too. And so, you know, I very much in writing Alice, you pour a lot of yourself into a work. And I, I think that at that point, she was absolutely feeling that she was trying to connect with the people who were sort of out in that wooded space, her ancestors. And it very much felt like I was, I wrote this book to stay in connection with my ancestor, my mama. Jamila Minnick's debut novel is titled Moonrise Over New Jessup. And this is Odetta. Sometimes I feel I am almost done Sometimes I feel I am almost done Sometimes I feel I am almost done And along all the way I'm Jamila, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.